today to declare the kingdom of God has come. So God, just empower us to see ourselves as your vessels of light, to be healing, deliverance to the captives. Lord, we pray your kingdom come. Lord, we pray your will be done. Every eye behold the one seated high upon the throne.
thirsty hearts again. You come, you come. We need you. We wait on you to come. Empower us to be your vessels. Wake us up from our sleep, oh God. When you walk into the room, everything changes. Darkness starts to tremble at the light that you bring. And when you walk into the room, every heart starts burning. And nothing matters more than just to sit here at your feet and worship you.
So turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this earth will grow strangely day, we realize and we are so grateful, God, that when you walk into a room, everything changes. God, we want the world to know 
that you need to walk into every room with us. That you never leave us. You never forsake us. God, when you walk into a room, everything changes. And all we have to say is yes and welcome you in to the room. When we turn our eyes upon you, when we welcome you in, it is your glory and grace that brings us into your presence. Father, we fall down on our knees. And we thank you for your spirit that gives us the strength, the power, that gives us the, the, just the stick-to-itiveness to just follow you and be with you every day when we are weak. In the darkest moments of our life, you never leave. When we feel sorrow, when we feel happiness, when we feel gratefulness, when we feel sad, when we feel lonely, we know that you're still there. So God, for all those watching on stream, for all those in this building that feel those moments, may they never, ever, never, ever forget that all they have to do is call your name. And you will be there. We ask this day, O oh God, that as Pastor Jeff brings this message, may you fall upon him. Bring him words of wisdom that come from your heart to ours. May he speak your words. May our hearts and our minds be open to hear you this day. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' holy name. And all of God's people say, amen. God bless. Did it turn that on? Oh, wow, hello, wow. That's much better. How are you doing, church? Everyone good this morning? It's, uh, it's still that time of the year where Pastor Eric and his family are out, uh, I think they're in Tennessee. Uh, last time I checked on the internet and saw a post, they were in Tennessee with the Sabins. So Ben and Cheyenne and Stella are enjoying Pastor Eric and his clan, uh, and they're all doing well, although there's rumors that last night he decided to teach his son how to drive. Which is really good that they're practicing that in another state because I think Ethan's like 12. And it looked like they were off-roading as well. So all those things together equal Eric, Ethan, mm, good times. God bless you guys for having a good time. It was a wonderful weekend, uh, men's breakfast yesterday, a bunch of guys hanging out, always a good time with that. Um, as you guys know, so much stuff has happened in the church, but what's happening with your lives? That's what I want to know. What's happening with your lives? Because something has been happening in my life. I would like to show you a picture of what's been happening in my life. I am now the proud grandparent of number four. Number four, yes, I don't look that old, thank you, but uh, I have four. And a fifth on the way. Um, do you have the really good one, Mark, the one that really speaks to my spiritual side? I think I gave you, no, there's, that's just, just a pleasant parent one. I, there. Now it makes sense. Now it makes sense, right? I see a couple of thumbs down and four clapping people. Now it makes sense. So not only is Adam Kenneth Lee my legacy child and a blessing to me, and Lauren, thank you for blessing me with Adam, but Adam is already being trained in the ways that he should go, Bill. 
so that when he is old, Robin, he will not fall astray. Because there's only one true L.A. way, church. The way. Not the, maybe not the truth, if you've been watching this play lately. But anyways, um, so with that, I mean, you're at, why am I happy? I'm a happy guy pretty much normally any given time. If you're new in the church, I'm Pastor Jeff, I'm the associate pastor. Um, I'm usually up a couple, five or six times hanging out with you. But I'm really happy lately because watching my son hold his son this Father's Day was like one of those really cool blessings. <laughs> Frank, stop it. Uh, and, you know, you get older and a lot of things happen, but, you know, in the world that we're living in right now, right, and all the different things where people are telling us this is happening and this is happening, and I thought, you know, once again, messages are always so timely. When Pastor Eric's picking out messages and saying, hey, Jeff, can you speak on this topic? Today's miracle, the sixth miracle recorded in the book of John, um, is about a blind man who's healed. But it really talks to me about the idea that what we do when adversity comes, how we deal with trials, how we deal with struggles is really important because what this message is going to reveal, we're in John 9, 1 through 18. What this message is going to reveal today is what happens to you when adversity, trials, tribulations, maybe you want to associate it with even evil, whatever happens to you when in this life you have dot, dot, dot. How you respond to that is either going to drive you to the cross or from the cross, right? If it's to the cross, then it's with open hands to say, okay, this makes no sense to me. Why would you allow this to happen? And ask God and Christ to speak into it. If it's from the cross, then you join a multitude of people who say, if God is love or if God is real, why would he allow calamity or evil or heartache? And one thing's for sure is this message was kind of buzzing around in my head this last two weeks. I realized something. A friend tried to commit suicide. Uh, I sent a friend of mine from the church to help me out with that. And the individual actually pulled a gun on my friend that I sent to help him out. That, to me, is one of those situations where when you get ready to speak a message about calamity and you realize you've invited somebody in, someone from my sphere of influence, a friend, when you invite someone from your world into someone's world that you're being called to minister to, someone who's in crisis, and you send that person there under the auspice, the pretense, I'm only here because I understand you're going through crisis. And that individual is so in crisis that the only way they can respond to this individual who comes open-handed to help is to place a gun to them, their head and threaten themselves. That is one of those situations where what God intended for good, right, because I didn't have the ability to go, so I rally through my head, and I think, who can help me? When God intended that for good, the devil intended that for something else, right? And we are threatened with the situation because after that scenario happened, that individual called, and we debriefed, uh, as you do, or, you know, when you have a situation of such magnitude, and we both realized something. We could either run to the cross and kneel at the feet of Jesus and say, help. That makes no sense. Or we could run from the cross and we could say, how could you allow that situation to happen when all I was going there was, was to help? I remember some good situations and bad situations. You guys know about my bicycle crash uh, 13, 11 years ago, whatever it was. I crashed on a bike. My brother made me a beautiful beach cruiser. First day I had it, pedaling to work. I lived like a mile away from my other church, trying to beat the traffic. 
pulled up on the handlebars to try to pedal fast to get out of traffic, chain comes off, and I fly over the handlebars and land elbows first in the concrete. If I don't land elbows first, I land face first. I compound fracture. This is all today, even metal and screws and all synthetic. But in doing that and saving myself, they discovered I had kidney disease. And the kidney disease that I had had would have never been discovered otherwise because I'm basically healthy other than that situation. But my time in the doctors these last 11 years has provided some amazing opportunities to do something. Either run to the cross and say, okay, God, I have a kidney disease that's not even Caucasian. It's not even traditionally in a Caucasian person, yet I have it. So what would you have me to do with this, God? Because now I'm having doctors. I go to doctors every three months, and I give blood every three months. So if you're ever at Hogue on a Tuesday or Wednesday, I know the plebologists really well. They know me really well. I, I have a pretty good community of people that are all really sick because God has allowed me the privilege to say, I didn't ask for this, but you've given it to me. Is this something new in the Bible? No, Paul had a thorn, right, in his side, and he prayed earnestly three times, can you remove this? We think it's glaucoma. It makes sense if you read the letters because the, the nuances in some of the letters may indicate larger print. But whatever it was and he couldn't see, he had to do something about it because God was still calling him to write. So what does he do? He developed the first group of scribes, Timothy, Silas, Barnabas. So other men of God got drawn in to hear the words of God that were being spoken to him so that they could write it down. I say all this for one reason. When we finally get to the passage, today we're going to, how many of you like Romans 8.28? Today we're going to get to something that if you like Romans 8.28, if you've been, I know Pastor Eric did one of those messages a couple weeks ago about contextually pulling something out. I think today we're going to add something to Romans 8.28. If you're one of those people who hang on Romans 8.28, you're going to hear something today in today's message that not only brings that to fullness, but it's going to give you peace of mind because in this life, church, you will have calamity. You will have heartbreak. You will have issues. No one who's ever picked up their cross and followed the, followed the God that we follow had everything fall into place and had a happy-go-lucky life. That's a different faith. And if someone's tried to sell you that, I'm sorry. That's not the faith that we have. Even this story today will end with the fact that for this man being removed from blindness to sight, the testimony that he has to give in front of the religious leaders is going to result in him being kicked out of the temple. And unfortunately, 2,000 years ago, there wasn't 53 churches to choose from. He couldn't have it his way. He could only have one church. And so to be kicked out of the temple for affirming that Jesus did, in fact, heal him, cost him once again everything that he once never had. He had for a brief moment, and then once again, he was outcast from the very place. You see, chapter 8 ended and started in kind of an interesting way. It started with uh, this woman being caught in adultery. And not only was she caught in adultery, she was caught in the act of. Interesting that people had the time to catch her in the act of, right? And so they bring her, not the man, they just bring her to Jesus to try to catch him and put him in a trap. Chapter 8 starts with that, and chapter 8's with Jesus standing in front of the temple and telling the religious leaders, before Abraham was, I was, I am. And in the same situation as 8 starts, because we were trying to wonder, me and Eric were talking about, why was 8 inserted? Why was that story inserted? I think it was inserted because it ends with the religious leaders gathering stones to do what? Stone Jesus. It's great bookends. The consensus of chapter 8 is this. At one moment, Jesus makes this phrase. I love Russell's uh, phrasings last year. Uh, Christianese phrase, right? I am the light of the world. 
Do you know that when Jesus said that, it was a, um, a temple time, it was a festival, it was one of the three annual festivals, the festival of shelters. He actually said that standing in the temple, in the inner court, and inside that would have been 16 gold bowls with oil lit. As he proclaims to that body of people in that moment, you talk about having a spiritual picture for a physical picture, I am the light of the world. Not just to you, Israel, but to the whole world. I mean, Jesus really put them on, he put, he put them on their ear from the very beginning. He never gave them a chance to recover. And I love that because as chapter 8 ends, they're gathering stones and they're getting ready to throw rocks, which is what they would do. They throw rocks, they would stone you, they would kill you, and then they would leave you under that pile of rocks rotting as a reminder to everyone else that what occurred in this place would occur to you if you would make such a heinous claim, which in this would be blasphemy. Before Abraham was, I was. I think that's so important because what it tells me about Jesus is Jesus's timing is not like ours because that's the ending of chapter eight. And as we start chapter nine, we're going to realize something. He's under the auspice of being stoned and having people chasing after him. He blinds their eyes and he moves forward into chapter nine with a willingness to instantly see a blind person sitting in front of the temple. You see, if there's one thing about Jesus that's perfectly clear about what it's like when adversity and troubles and trials strike, he's always available to be inconvenienced, right? We always think we never want to bother Jesus. There's no bother to Jesus. It is his job. It is his right. He is the light of the world. And so when he sees someone in darkness, the, the idea of why John recorded these miracles is really important because although they're singular acts, like uh, uh, Jesus' first act of turning water into wine, that's a singular act. But that's also his first act, right? As he's 30 years old, he's basically initiating to everyone. This is the inaugural moment that the Messiah is coming out. And I want to show you something. I want to tell you something. I have the ability to take something from this substance and make it this substance, a substance it could not ever become on its own. And so even though it's water to wine, it's symbolic of a much bigger picture. And all the miracles represent that. They're all symbolic of a bigger picture. I can change you from a sinner to a saint by professing me as your Lord and Savior. And that's why each one of the seven miracles are so important. In that second miracle where he heals the nobleman's son, he heals that gentleman's son from a distance, right? The conversation between the nobleman and Jesus is, I know that if you say it, it will happen because in my world as a military leader, if I say it, it happens. So just say it and it will happen. And then he rides his horse back, a full horse, a whole full day of riding back, he comes back to find out his son is, yes, healed. And what's his first question? When did it happen? When did it happen? Why? Because i got to subtract my writing time and go back to when I said to him, if you say it, it will happen. He affirms that's exactly when it happened. And what? His whole family comes to salvation. The third miracle, which I did with you guys, the healing of the lame man at the pool of Bethsaida, Jesus speaks, he speaks to him from right next to him. Does he touch? Yes. Sometimes he touches. Sometimes people touch him. The woman with the blood issue simply touched the fringe of his garment going by, right? The fringe, that little tassel part of his things. He meets people wherever they are, whatever the situation is. And with this man, he simply speaks it from proximity. The problem with that miracle, uh, the third miracle was that individual later comes to see Jesus in the temple because anything that happened to you, you had to report to the religious leaders what happened. Unfortunately, that gentleman does not come to salvation. He does not worship Jesus, and Jesus warns him, be cautious that something worse doesn't happen to you. 
Well, what could be worse than being lame your whole life? Going to hell for eternity, right? Each one of the miracles, feeding the 5,000, bring Jesus what you have. Jesus doesn't need anything, but bring him what you have and watch what he can do. And then this week's miracle where he's actually going to heal somebody's sight. Everything about every miracle that's recorded is significant. That's why there's only seven. It's not that he would, he could have wrote just a book. John could have been just a book on miracles. From the time Jesus started healing from the time he was 30, for about three and a half years, it was total time he had uh, to do ministry. Jesus is healing nonstop. His healing is sight. His healing is uh, hearing. His healing is arms, uh, legs, any kind of deformities. His healings is anything and everything that's made that society struggle. He is healing nonstop. And trust me, they know who he is and they know what's going on. But remember, John wrote these things, John 20, 31, for one reason. Why did he write them? So that by seeing these miracles, that we could believe in these miracles and come to salvation in him. Folks, no matter what we do, no matter why we do it, never lose sight of the main thing and what we're doing here. The whole point of anything we talk about when we talk about Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is that people could see that he is the Messiah, the promised Messiah. And in seeing that he is the promised Messiah, come to faith in him and believe in him. It is the sole purpose of anything and everything we've ever said. So let's read. With that as the backdrop, Jesus leaving the temple under the pretense of being stoned, pandemonium and chaos would seem to be what's happening but as we're going to see, Jesus just goes right back into it. He blinds their eyes. Everything goes back to what Jesus is doing. I have a job to do. Why the sun is up, why there's light in the world, I have work to do. And then we'll read in verse, starting in verse 9 and see what he does. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was blind? Verse 3, neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. And the night is coming when no one can work. And while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Back to uh, chapter 8, court, temple standing there. I am the light of the world. And after saying this, he spit on the ground. He made some mud with the saliva. And he put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam. Those words mean sent. So the man went and he washed. And he came home seeing. His neighbors and those who were formerly seen with him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Verse 9. And some claimed he was, but others said, No, he looks like him. But he himself replied, insisted, I am the man. Verse 10. How then were your eyes open? They asked. He replied, The man they called Jesus made mud, and he put it on my eyes. And he told me to go to Siloam and wash and so I went, and I washed, and then I could see. Verse 12, where is the man, they asked. I don't know, he said. I find that interesting. Where is the man? A pretty much affirmation, what, that he could see, right? Why would you ask a blind man, where is the man? That would be, that would be kind of redundant, but clearly he can see now. They brought, the, they brought him to the Pharisees, and the man who had been blind, now on the day which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes, it was the Sabbath. A Sabbath, great. The, this is what, the seventh recorded New Testament miracle on the Sabbath. Verse 15, therefore, what's it there for? It's summarizing everything that we just said. Therefore, the Pharisees who asked him how he had received his sight, he said, he put mud on my eyes. And the man replied, I washed and now I see. But some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God and he does not keep the Sabbath. But others ask, 
How can a sinner perform these sights? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. And what have you to say about him? He, uh, it was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and that he received a sight then. So they sent for the man's parents. Now, Jesus was being threatened to be stoned. And he's walking out of the temple, and he just so happens to see a blind person. I don't know about you, but the last time someone was threatening me was when I was about 23 years old, and I was working, doing a job where I drove people around, and they took surveys for a water company. I accidentally ended up in an area one night in Pico Rivera, where two local neighborhood gangs were going to have a a party of sorts at this baseball field. And they had brought bats and the appropriate things, but they forgot balls. And so, as I realized in my 23-year-old mind that I had just dropped about 15 or 20 kids off in this neighborhood, seeing what was about to take place with about 80 different people, something flashed in front of my eyes. You're not supposed to be here, and you need to get everyone out, right? If you're in a dangerous situation vis-a-vis being stoned, people are trying to kill you, You go, and you go pretty quickly. I remember finding all the kids screaming a little bit and then doing a large burnout out of the neighborhood. Those are the things I remember. And all the kids crying as I drove them all the way back to Brea because I told them I just didn't think we should be out that night. Jesus is under the auspice of being stoned. They're literally 100, 200 yards behind him. And as he's walking out, he happens to see a blind man. Happens to see a blind man. I keep saying that, happens. Folks, there's nothing about Jesus that happens, just happenstance. Everything about our God is so absolutely divine and intentional because he just got done telling everyone, I am the light of the world. And why there is light, I got work to do. I'm not going to walk by someone who's literally in darkness and try to go do something else, right? It's kind of like sometimes we want to do mission work. We want to get on an airplane and go somewhere to go do mission work. Folks, if there's mission work to do here, let's do the work here that's right in front of us first, right? And Jesus is saying, right here, right now is someone that's in darkness. That's a physical picture of a spiritual principle. The reality, church, is every single one of you sitting here today was once in darkness. Because the reality of this miracle is this, that Jesus has performed a miracle on every single human being. The opportunity to come to salvation in and of itself is a miracle. Because how many are righteous? Not one. And how many times can a blind man see a righteous person to go ask for assistance? Not once. A blind person requires that someone sees him and addresses his need. And that fact, before you even get to the message, is crucial to catch because John is saying, no matter what the situation is, no matter why the situation is dire, it's never dire to Jesus. You're the only thing that matters. Him stopping and addressing your need is the only thing that matters. Even like the lame man at the pool of Bethsaida, he stopped and addressed the need knowing Jesus already knew that that gentleman was not going to come to salvation in him. But it didn't stop him from providing him the opportunity. The Bible says eternity has been placed on man's heart. And I am an absolute confident believer in the word of God that every human being that dies will die under the pretense of having an opportunity to understand that behold, Jesus stands at the door of your heart and knocks. If anyone opens the door and lets him in, he will come in. If you don't open the door and you simply look at him through the peephole or acknowledge his voice or know who's outside, that is not letting him in. 
And that you will have to be reckoned for every day of your life at some point when it comes to eternity. So Jesus says, look, guys, there's a situation. It needs to be addressed. Strop the caravan. I'm going to address this man's needs. It presents a really quick conundrum. Two different trains of thoughts instantly become perfectly aware. One is Jesus's. Be interruptible. Be available. Be open to someone stopping and helping and meet your need. Which means for us as believers, be looking for the opportunity to, to jump in and meet that need. Right? Jesus is going to meet that need. He knows what the purpose of what he's doing there. He's going to show this man that all things, and we know that all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Now, this might separate some because some people still have a problem with the fact that God has called everyone. I don't have a problem with that. I believe God's called everyone. I believe the phone's ringing in every single house. The question is simply back to that simple little thing. Because he's calling, you still have to answer, right? That's the difference is do you answer? Do you answer the call and invite him in? But the disciples that are with them, they have a different situation. They instantly go to this theology of some kind of cause and effect of sin. Because the question that they say, who sinned, this man or, this, or his parents, is loaded. It's absolutely loaded with theology. Now, the theology is a little bit bizarre. One aspect of the theology is that the baby in utero sinned. Yes. How that happens, I don't know. But I know during my daughter's pregnancy, she said Adam would kick her in the ribs, and she thought that was naughty. <laughs> well, Adam ended up being almost a 10-pound, 22-inch baby. So I think rather than being naughty, what Adam was saying, there's no more room in the end. Get me out of here. <laughs> right? They didn't take it that way. They literally believed that the baby had the ability to commit sin. That just, that's audacious to me. But it exists. Another one they had was this notion of pre-existent sin. A pre-existent sin might have been something where your soul had sin with it, and it was simply catching up to you. You had done something, and it was catching up to you. You say, Pastor Jeff, those all seem pretty bizarre. They do, but think about this. Remember Job? You guys all remember Job in the Bible? Job was a righteous man. The difference is with Job, we have the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth from the beginning to the end. So we get to understand why a righteous man was all of a sudden put under calamity. Now, if you're a righteous man or a righteous woman sitting in there today and you're thinking, well, because I'm righteous, I'm going to avoid calamity, then you need to reread Job. Because not only is Job put under calamity, it's known why Job is going to be under calamity. Because the, somehow there's this conversation between the devil and the Lord talking about, well, if you just removed your hand of blessing from him, right? If you stop protecting him, oh man, he's going to curse you, and you wait and see. This guy's just going to turn his back on you, and it's going to be... And for a brief moment, we got to see behind the veil right there, right? we got to see behind what's happening. It doesn't seem fair. No, it doesn't seem fair. Well, what's worse is Job's friends show up to help. Job's friends, like the disciple, they believe that same thing. You've done something... And now you're reaping the benefits of that. That's not the case here, right? With Job, not only is it not the case, but Job's still actually in a righteous position. But they just tell Job, hey, Job, if you would just ask for forgiveness, if you would just repent, then the blessing will be restored. This situation, this miracle, this passage of God's word reveals something to us. That sometimes really horrific things happen 
to good people, right? I know people that have died a lot of different ways. I'm sure you do too. But it just seems to me like every drunk driving accident that I'm called to or that I respond to involves the drunk person surviving and the family that was just going about their business or the individual going about their business passing. I know recently a gentleman was uh, walking with his pregnant wife and, uh, and she was hit by a drunk and she ended up passing and the child ended up surviving. But they just interviewed her, it's like one year later and, and this man's still suffering. And I think to myself, who in this man's life is providing comfort? right? If this man doesn't have someone in his life to provide him comfort, if his only friends are like Job's or Shovel, just repent. You obviously did something. Can you imagine telling someone in that situation, well, you shouldn't have been walking at night. That street's not safe. And that's kind of the mindset here. It's like Jesus is saying, I hear what you guys are about to say, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to clip this thing once and for all. Because the reality is sometimes really bad things happen for no apparent reason. Now, does that take away from the fact that medically speaking, if you had certain sexually transmitted diseases which still exist today, a child can be born blind? No, it doesn't take away from that. Does it take away from the fact that sanitation 2,000 years ago wasn't exactly what we have today in our hospitals and due to other sanitation issues that could have caused blindness? It could have. There's environmental issues. There's a myriad and a multitude of other things. But the reality that this man had done something before he's born blind, before his birth, Jesus is saying, guys, you're missing the whole point. It's a theology full of holes, and the idea is it simply needs to be quelled. You are a sinner, yes, and you have life. And when you do make mistakes, when you do have things, there's cause for certain things that will happen because of it. But is it also part of life that sometimes, for no reason known to you, adversity, calamity, and evil may happen. Absolutely, yes. But because of Job, we know that we continue to read and we find out something. Jesus answers this definitively for them in verse 3. Neither the man nor his parents sinned. Okay, that's a lot to take in. Does that mean they were sinless? No, absolutely not. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is definitively that they did not do something that caused this particular ailment. But instead, you should know something, verse 4, that this is actually going to be done for a reason. Now, remember I told you this is going to connect Romans 8.28 for all of you that love Romans 8.28. Actually, verse 4 tells us this. As long as it is day, no, verse 3, sorry, verse 3. Neither this happened for that reason, neither did his parents sin, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. How is it possible that all things can work for the glory of God? It's possible because in all things, in all adversity, in all calamity, you have the opportunity to see that God is using that for his glory. That changes your perspective on any time you're in a situation. That changes your perspective on being broken and realizing that, okay, this man's blind. This man at some point of his life is now sent out by his parents and he's sent to the local church, which is in that time is the tabernacle. And he's basically going to sit in front of that tabernacle for the remainder of his life with a can or with some kind of alms opportunity saying, please assist me. And for whatever period of time, they, some, one, of the, some of the commentaries I was saying is about 30. Maybe he's about 30 years old because he has to be of age. So he's of age, 
whatever time it is, he has been blind that entire time, and you're thinking, that's just not fair. And folks, sometimes it's not about what's fair. This picture is bigger than just one person being blind and being made able to see. It's bigger than that, because what Jesus is actually going to get to is there's people right now who can see, they've been able to see their whole life, and they're not going to be able to experience what this man is about to experience right now. But for the glory of my son, and for this moment right now, it's all going to make sense. It's not just a promise for today for this man. It's going to be a promise of the coming Messiah. Um, Isaiah 35, if you guys look at Isaiah 35 at some point in your life, Isaiah 35 talks about what the Messiah was actually going to be coming and doing. It's a major parameter of the Messiah that the first thing the Messiah is going to come and do, he's going to heal the blind. He's going to bring sight to the blind. And if Jesus is doing this on a nonstop basis, then you can be assured of one thing. Even though it's the Sabbath, right? They're talking about it's the Sabbath. Even though it's the Sabbath, if there's an opportunity for Jesus to restore someone's sight, he's going to do it. Because physical darkness is being compared to spiritual darkness, and we're all, spiritually speaking, we're all blind. So Jesus is taking that time to insert himself into the situation and say, this is the reason why. Look at, this is the seventh time I have broken the Sabbath. You guys keep confusing the Sabbath. I was made for the Sabbath. I'm, you're not talking about me breaking laws. I'm the fulfillment of the laws. It's crazy. The whole point of what, what he's about to do to, to make this mud and, and, and spit and make this little mud cake. Um, I don't know about you, but it just sounded gross to me, right? I mean, because of COVID, we've all become so paranoid of, of air particulate, right? We don't even want air particulate to land on us. But 2,000 years ago, saliva was considered like healing. And if you cross-reference this miracle with some of the stuff in Mark, you're going to see there's additional healings in Mark, uh, both sight and hearing, where saliva is, comes into play. And I started thinking about that. Like, if somebody did that today, if somebody spit on the ground and made mud, um, we'd probably call the police or something, right? That would be some kind of hate crime or something today. And it's back to the religious leaders. The spit, spitting in and of itself, according to what I could come to understanding about this, you could spit, and that didn't break the law. But if you spit in the mud, and then you took the mud, and you kneaded it together, that was what you would call like for kneading or making bread. That was working. So it was in the kneading of the two materials together that he broke the law. He was kneading. They had gone as far to say that if you spit and it stays in place, no sin. No flag is thrown. But if you spit and it furrows, like it moves from where you spit and it begins to move, if it furrows, if it creates a furrow, you're gardening. And you've broken the law. Can you imagine a, a law, 613 different laws that you could break every day? No wonder why it was such an ominous thing to try to be a Jewish follower of Christ, because they had been ingrained with all these rules and regulations. How do you, how do, you do anything? Needless to say, the miracle is not the miracle of mud, because you can make mud, and I can make mud, and we can put it in people's face. You can go on a mud run. You can do a lot of things with mud. It's not the miracle of mud. It's the miracle of that man, the mud that Jesus made and placed on his eyes, and then he went and washed, right? What happens if he doesn't go and wash? Does John record this? I don't think so. That's a different conversation. That's a different chapter in the, bo in the book of John. 
right? The miracle is that the man goes and washes. And the miracle to me is, at some point I finally realized something. You know what else involved mud, dirt, and breath? Creation. God, ex nihilo, from nothing. New mud, pneumonia, blew life into what? Adam, my son, right? The dust. How personal, how intimate is that to John to say, look, I'm only going to record seven miracles. But there's a reason why. If I just recorded miracles, it would just be not John. It would just be called miracles. Because he, he's doing miracles all day, every day, nonstop. Right? John records it. It would be volumes of book if I just recorded miracles. But I'm going to record the miracles that are so significant. If you take the time to mine into them and look into them, they're going to blow up with the truth that he is the Messiah. Isaiah 35 said it. He is that Messiah. Because this man can't see. He's creating sight. Right? If you're born blind, he's creating sight. I don't know. I get fired up stuff and I tell my wife and she tells me, calm down when I start telling her the points. It's like, but I just, I think that that's how good God is, right? It's like you and me are walking around today and we got mud on our face and the world's been mean to us and, and someone spit on us and someone said, oh, you're a believer and you don't cuss. And you, it's like we're walking around with mud on our face and we're like, why, God? This is, this is so unbecoming. It's so unnatural. And he's saying, hey, go wash. You, like you're in process of a miracle, but you got to go wash. Right? I mean, sometimes God's using the adversity and the calamity of this world to say, hey, look, I'm refining you. It's my prerogative as sovereign savior. Sovereignty means he's over us. means his thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And he is refining us. So when the world spits on us or when adversity hits or when trials hit or when a drunk driver takes someone, we don't have to fall apart and feel no hope. We can still cry. We're still humans. We can cry and we can lament with that person, but we instill the hope that is Christ in that situation. If he doesn't listen and go to the pool, we're not talking about him today. And some of you today just need to go to the pool and wash. You just need to go to the feet of Christ and wash. Maybe you just need to take a long walk on the beach today and say, why does it still feel like I'm covered in mud? Maybe you've got broken relationships or broken situations or ungiven apologies or something in your life that's holding you back. And he's just saying, I can't, it's not love if I let you live that way and not, you know, the, the understanding is, come to me, bring your situation to me, and I'll deal with it. And I'm not only going to deal with it, I'm going to show you how all things, even your debris field, right? Whenever you guys need a great reminder of debris field, the mosaics, this church is so blessed to have these incredible glass windows and whatever. But I mean, a mosaic is really a wonderful representation of brokenness given to the artist and recreated something new. And it's far more beautiful than what it was as a single pane of glass, right? Because that's who he is, and that's what he does. And he said he can only do it while the light is in the world, so he can only do it while there's light. And you can only do it while you're here, because once you're gone, the time to witness is over. I can't help but think about one thing in the story that really bothers me, though. They acted like they didn't know who he was. Is it him? Is it not him? Now, if we had someone sitting in front of our church for 15 years, blind, every Sunday sitting in front of our church, asking for assistance, we get to be pretty familiar with who he is, right? I mean, I'm pretty familiar with most of you, and I've only been here four years. 
right? But if someone sits in front of your building every single, they know who this guy is. But they're saying, it can't be him. I love that, uh, you know, the phrase, I'm the man, we, today is like a phrase, right? But they don't realize that that's the fr- first time that phrase was said was by a blind man in front of a bunch of other people who was claiming it wasn't himself. He's like, I'm the man. Like, I'm the guy who used to sit out there every week. What you see is what you see. My eyes are open. I see you, right? And they're like, nah, nah, can't be. And he's like, man, I'm the man. And they keep asking the same question. What happened? How did it happen? What happened? How did it happen? And he finally says, look, I don't know. All I know is this, is I was blind, right? And I washed, and now I can see. Why are you asking? God does not hear sinners how can you say, how are you guys, you know, they're all divided. How can you say this man's a sinner? How are you calling me a sinner? I was the one that was blind. I'm just telling you, I can see. And isn't that just like us? Rather than seeing the miracle that's straight in front of us, right? Because I hate to tell you guys this, but COVID, for all the things that COVID did that was nasty, horrible, and bad, COVID made families come back together in such a way that would have never happened in the United States of America. We, we forgot how to hang out. We, we ostracize eating dinner together. We, we, we become the atomic families that live and do and live autonomous lives. And all of a sudden, it all got shoved back in our face. And we all had to sit in front of someone and talk to them. And we had to do it day after day. And people said it was punishment and suicide and depression and anxiety and domestic violence. I work with the police department, I can tell you, it's been like incredibly like it's one of the highest spikes ever seen. Because we've forgotten how to do it. Does that seem loving to you? Mm, maybe. If you get a chance to see it through God's eyes, if you get a chance to hear it through God's ears, maybe you'll realize what a blessing. Hey, people are going to die. Whether there's COVID or no COVID, just in case you're wondering, people are going to die. People die every day. Every like, th- second someone dies. It's not about whether or not people are going to die. People are going to die. We're all going to die. Everyone in this room, newsflash, we're all going to die. As far as I can read in the Bible, two people have beaten it. And as far as I can read in the Bible, two people get sent back to preach during the trials and tribulation and ultimately get killed. That seems to be an interesting conundrum for me to even try to reconcile. Otherwise, it's been appointed a man time to die, a time to be born, and a time to die. We're overrating death and underrating salvation. Folks, it's never been about your 60 or 70 or 80 years or your 30 years or your three minutes, Right? My fourth grandchild never even got a chance to be held or seen. But that doesn't mean Colby's not part of our lives. It doesn't mean we don't think about her. And it doesn't mean when I get to heaven, I hopefully will not only not recognize her, but get a chance to see her as one of the few people I want to see first. It's overrated. Eternity? Ah, there's something to wake up for. There's something to take a deep breath and say, wait a minute. I could be blind in this life, which this man was, for 30 years. I could have a difficult life. I could have a lot of adversity. But then I could be like Pastor Jeff started thinking. Think about the blind people that you know. Uh, Stevie Wonder, Ann Keller, Bocelli. Huh. I started thinking about people that I knew that had blindness. And I started thinking, maybe blind people are living better lives than any of the people I know that have sight. Right? Maybe we're just confusing what adversity and difficulty really is. I mean, in the end, would you rather have sight your whole life and die and go to hell, or no sight for a percentage of your life and then have sight given to you and live eternally with God? 
Remember, the urging is that something worse could happen to you. Back in that third miracle. The woman caught in sin and sinned no more. It's not that she wasn't going to sin, but don't be caught in this adulterous life anymore. Because now you already know, this is a dead end. You don't want to be here anymore. The man's eyes were open. The man had a chance to see something. The man had a chance to say, how can a sinner perform these kinds of miracles? And they had no answer because they kept asking how and what. And they never asked why and who. Right? If you ask why, why were you healed? Because that's what he does. He told me that's what he does. He said, this is what I do. I'm the light that's come into the world, and I'm here to restore the things that are broken. Who? He said his name is Jesus. And they still don't believe him. And now they want to call his parents in. Imagine that. Call his parents in. Okay, mom and dad, you're going to rally. You're going to be there for me. You're going to tell him the truth. What do his parents do? Um, yes, that's our son. Uh, yes, he was born blind, but that's all we know. We plead the fifth from that point on. Why? Why is everybody pleading the fifth with the religious leaders? Because if the religious leaders deem that you're saying that he actually is a prophet, he is fulfilling what um, Isaiah 35 said, then that's blasphemous. And if you're going to blaspheme in the temple, they have no choice but to kick you out. Now, if someone kicks you out of church today, that's an inconvenience. But with 53 other churches, it's not too bad. You drive up the street. Um, there's some really good churches in town. And you can start all over again. But when there's one church in town, and that one church is central to every component of life, then getting kicked out of it's a really, really, really horrific thing. It meant you couldn't go to church anymore. First thing, you're out of the temple, you're done. You're done worshiping. Secondly, it meant you might not be able to get a job anymore. Because all the religious people in town would know that you're no longer part of the temple. And associating with you could be problematic for them. And thirdly, it was a very high probability that your own family would then disown you because you've lost the faith that they've been given, the chosen people. And in that, he's gone from being this outcast who's blind, who has no family. Then all of a sudden, he's given this brief moment where he can see, and he uses that to affirm Jesus is the Messiah. He's a prophet. He is that. And what did they do? They kicked him out of the temple. Now, this passage, without any other conclusion, which really, really grateful that verses 35 through 38 would, are in there, this passage, without any other conclusion, would be really difficult to kind of finish on that. If the whole point was that he gets sight, he comes to faith in Christ, and he loses everything, that's pretty tough. But losing everything for the sake of heaven is worthwhile. Now, in the final verses, 35 through 38, something happens. 35 through 38 tells us that as the man's getting kicked out of the temple, verse 35, Jesus runs into him. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out and found him and said, do you believe in the son of man? In verse 36, he said, who is he? The man asked, tell me so that I might believe in him. Verse 37, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And verse 38 says, then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. The verbiage actually reads, if you translate that, he pronated himself. He pronated himself, and he bowed down, and he acknowledged him as Lord and Savior. Jesus ends up finishing that passage with a warning, a stern warning to the religious leaders. The fact that they claim to continue to see, for him, 
meant they were spiritually blind. And he gave them a very, very stern warning and said, you know what? This man is in a much better situation than you are. Of course, they casted, they, made, they told Jesus that he wasn't the Messiah. They told him he was just a sinner like this man was, and they did everything they could to kind of, you know, throw the situation out and be done with it. But the reality is they've been watching miracles nonstop for three years, maybe three and a half years. They know who Jesus is. The, divini the divinity of Jesus is absolutely quantifiable. And in the following miracle that's coming up in the next uh, few verses here, in the next few chapters, when he raises Lazarus from the dead, and John records that, what he's saying is he not only has power with words, spoken at a distance, with words, spoken in proximity, by touch, by creation, passing by the Shekinah of God, just the glory of God walking by. He not only has all that, but he's going he's gonna to walk on water and he's going to raise the dead because he has power over nature and life and death itself. There's nobody, folks, there's nobody that ever was, nobody that ever will be anything like what Jesus claimed to be. The way, the truth, and the life. Does it sound kind of separating? And does it feel a little bit like we're maybe a little bit too confident in what we're saying? Yeah, but our hope is in him. If we don't run to the cross, then we're running from the cross. And then we'd have to reckon to the world around us why there's evil, why there's adversity, why there's hardship without having God to explain so that you can see who my son is, so that you can see the mercies of what I have in store, so that Job could be what? Restored exponentially for persevering through trials. That's the most important thing that you could possibly do is you could persevere through the trial to have that testimony to say, look, what God has now shown me is not up for sale. It's not up for your affirmation or his affirmation or the religious leader's affirmation. I know what God has done for me. I'm willing to share that with you. And you, if you're fertile soil, then God bless you. But if not, Jesus is standing at the door and he's knocking. Now I'm going to call the band back up and we're going to finish with a, a really amazing hymn. The hymn is uh, Amazing Grace. Now, what I want you guys to realize something is that as the band gets ready to sing this and, and, and think about the words of this, this song was written from this passage. I once was blind, but now can see. And next time you see some kind of adversity, next time you see some kind of calamity in the world that's around you, rather than feel sad, mad, glad, or whatever about it, remind yourself do you think that God is allowing you to see that calamity so that you can insert yourself into it? And what do you actually risk by inserting yourself into that calamity? I get a privilege as a chaplain for the police department and as a pastor to be in ICUs and to be in hospitals when people are on their last thread. Offering them just hope void of God is not only is it an extremely difficult thing to do, but I would actually tell you some of the most difficult things in my life have been when I'm asked to bring comfort and hope to people without using the name of God. It, it's almost like, but then from where? Disneyland? I mean, what am I, what am I, supposed, to, what am I supposed to offer this person? This person is in dire straits and I'm going to offer them nothing. There is only one name that comforts people in their final moments. It's the amazing grace, how sweet that sound is, 
that saved a wretch like me. We were all blind, folks. We were all blind. The miracle has happened to every single one of us. Jesus is in the miracle business, and every single one of your testimony represents a miracle. Don't ever forget who you are. Don't ever forget what he's done, and don't ever forget as long as there's light, you got work to do, and you need to share, and you need to show what you know. It may be a lot. It may be a little, but you're responsible to give it out freely, just as he's given it out freely to you. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you for the day. I thank you for the opportunity once again that is every Sunday to come and hear your word, to come see your word come alive, to realize that even though John wrote this 2,000 years ago, it couldn't speak any more truthfully than it does right now. All of us have seen heartache. All of us have seen brokenness. All of us have seen adversity and calamity befall people that we love. (laughs) And sometimes instead of bringing our troubles to God and crying out to him, we yell at him. And we somehow want to blame him. We want to send our friends in to people that are struggling and going through hardship and and they want to threaten us and they want to make the situation even more dire. Father, there's the only thing that's dire in this world is that we would have Jesus stand at the heart of our door of life and say, you know what, I'm not going to invite you in. I'm I'm going to take a chance to ride this thing out on my own and make the most of it on my own. That chance, Father, that people are taking with eternity, that resisting of the Holy Spirit is the only unforgivable sin. There's There's only one unforgivable sin. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is to refute the work that you were trying to do to knock on the door, to speak truth into people's life. Wherever people are this morning, whatever they're doing, however they're listening, I pray, Father, that today you would break through. Today that the light of Christ would break through the blind eyes and we would truly be able to embrace and see just how amazing grace is. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to call him Lord and Savior. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me.
I hate coming up here. I don't know what you're going to do. Get it going. I'll give you a oomph. Hey, God is good. If you have any prayer requests, if you have any questions about anything, let us know. I'll be here afterwards. Still old school. Love to pray. If you have prayer requests and you turn them into those boxes on the back wall, the elders will pray for them on Monday. We also have another prayer group that meets on Sunday. If we can help connect you to any of the life groups, anything happening in the church. Also, Tim O'Mara is back there in the right-hand corner. He's looking for some volunteers for some stuff. Tim has replaced Don, as you guys know, as our local missions outreach. Tim, can you wave really quick so everyone can see you back there? That's Tim back there if you guys have any questions. Whatever's going on in your life, God bless you. Thank you for being a part of it, and we will see you next Sunday. God bless. This is the life that I now live. Because I